needless announcements. Uh, we are in the book of Hebrews, so I encourage you to go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I just want to encourage you, we, uh, we had two, um, two of our women were moving houses uh, this last week, uh, Friday and Saturday. And I just want you to know, just the word was put out, hey, they need some help moving. And many, many, many of you just came out with your vehicles, with your muscles and your energy and everything else. And you all did an incredible job moving. And so that was just a testimony of your love and uh, just what God is doing in our church. Uh, so that was incredible. And then even some of the guys then came over to my house. I had wonderful news of, of septic problems. And so some of the guys came over to dig at my house. So uh, again, there's just uh, a sweetness within the body. And so I just want to encourage you with that on, on how that's being seen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses <clears throat> 14 to 18. Uh, and just as a reminder, so Hebrews is a book written to a church that's been persecuted for the gospel. They're hurting. They're struggling in their faith. They're beginning to question, is this really the true gospel? Should we keep believing in this Jesus who was crucified? And so the author sees that if something doesn't happen, based upon the current trajectory of the church, they will begin to spiritually drift from the faith. And so that's what he addresses here in chapter 2. And so as we go on, let me just ask you, have you ever had... That moment where you had that crisis of faith, where you just begin to question, is what I believe actually true? Have you ever wondered, is this gospel not true? Have I been duped into believing this thing? Maybe you're, maybe you're wrestling in your faith right now. And so I just want to encourage you, this text is meant for that purpose, to strengthen us. So if you're questioning, if you're wrestling with the truths of God's word, if you're going, is this gospel for real? That's why this book has been written, to strengthen and to encourage us. It's meant to come alongside a church that's in the midst of a storm. It's about encouraging those who have been kicked and beaten, and not just spiritually, but, but physically, they would come alongside them and remind them of the greatness of this gospel. And so in today's text, the author is going to point out three truths of the gospel that's meant to strengthen the church. And I just want to encourage you, these truths, they're meant to increase our joy. So as we're here today, the purpose for all of us ought to be that as we listen to them, as we hear them, as we read about them, as the Spirit works in us, one of the reasons is that our joy would increase. One of them is that we would feel the warm embrace and the comfort of our God, of our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The other reason is that we would also grow in our boldness in the faith. Because if we understand the truths that we're looking at here today, then we'll be willing to risk everything for the sake of the gospel because it's that good, it's that sweet. And so um, the main point is that the gospel saves us from our sins and strengthens us to stand firm against temptation. So we're going to see both those, how it saves and how it strengthens. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 to 18, I want to encourage you to stand we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so as a means of reminding ourselves that this word, these 66 books contained in this Bible are inerrant, are infallible, are inspired by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of our correction, of our training in righteousness. So here we go, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, this is Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made more, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a, faith, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, Father, this is a good word. 
This is an amazing, amazing truth here that you have given us. And I pray that your spirit would now just with great clarity just speak through your text in this time where we just study your word and that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would grow in our joy and boldness. And I pray that if there is anyone here who is wrestling with their faith, they would see the truth of your word today, that your spirit would work in them and awaken, awaken them and open their eyes to the beauty of your gospel that saves us from our sins, that strengthens us against temptation, that you've adopted us into your family, sanctified us, making us more and more like your son Jesus, that we would spend eternity with you. Oh God, may this word, may you accomplish all that you desire today through your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, first thing I want you to see, This first thing, the gospel is about the Son of God taking on flesh and becoming one of us. We just have to see that. That's the whole point of chapter 2. In verse 14, we read, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning since, since we look like this, since we're human, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning he became human. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, therefore just like you look the way you do and, and you're, you are in humanity, so Jesus joined us in our humanity. Verse 9, if you go back just a little bit, it says, But we see him, this is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. To be made lower than the angels is to be human. Uh, he refers that earlier in uh, verses 6, 7, and 8 when he quotes Psalm 8. So this is Jesus. All these verses are talking about the fact that Jesus came in the flesh to save us from the gospel, or to save us from our sins. Um, This is the gospel that we preach every week. When we come into this Bible, into this word, uh, it preaches the truth that Jesus came in the flesh. This is what Paul preached Where Paul says in Romans 1 that this gospel has the power to save both Jew and Gentile. He's talking about that this Jesus who came in the flesh is the one who saves us from our sins. Um, And we need to realize that Christianity is different than every other religion that there is. Because in Christianity, God becomes like us because we can't become like him. So he becomes like us in order to save us and then sanctify sanctify us, make us like himself, that we would share in his glory for all of eternity. And and as we go through chapter 2, or as we've been going through chapter 2, the author has been explaining why Jesus has come in the flesh. And so we're kind of closing out the argument here today, uh, but I want to just quickly recap from verse 5 to where we're at today um, on why Jesus came in the flesh. The church is wrestling with this. Remember, they're being persecuted. And so uh, in the first century, as well as today, you can just imagine a crucified Messiah is not something that necessarily draws the crowds, rather it draws the mocking. And so they begin to wrestle with, as they've been persecuted, is this real? Like, is this really what we should do? And so he's reminded them the great salvation that we have that comes through a Savior who became like one of us. And so uh, beginning in verse 5, working our way through, the first thing we see is that the author quotes Psalm 8 in verses 6, 7, and 8. And he does that. Because he's reminding us that man, that you and I, we were created to be crowned with glory. We were created with God's original intent to rule creation, to have a crown as we were uh, created to rule over all of the earth. But what we saw is that when Adam sinned, he plunged also all of humanity into sin as well. And so because we are sinful, because Adam sinned and we come from Adam and we're sinful, we will never obtain the crown of glory. And we use that word, if you remember federal headship, you remember that? We don't use that in everyday language. Federal headship just simply means representation. 
Like when the president says he declares war against another nation, he represents us all. So we're all at war with another nation. And so when Adam sinned as the federal head, the representative of all of humanity, when he sinned, we all became sinners then also. And so because we all come from Adam, we have no hope of obtaining this crown, of of ruling over creation, of reaching the original intent in which God created mankind for. So what we need, we need a different head. We need a new federal head. We need a new representative. The problem is we all come from Adam. So how do you get a human that doesn't come from Adam when we all come from Adam? Which is why then a couple weeks ago we talked about the necessity of the virgin birth and why we never, ever, 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 ever compromise on the virgin birth. It's said by many people, what do you lose if you lose the virgin birth? Well, you lose the gospel. Because Jesus comes not from the line of Adam, but he comes from a virgin, that he would now be a new representative of humanity, redeemed humanity. And we read in verse 9 that he suffers and he dies, so referring to the cross. And then we read, and therefore he was crowned with glory. So Jesus comes in the flesh, obtains the crown of glory that we can never have because we come from Adam. And then it says in verse 10 that he now saves us, that we'd become what? sons of glory and that refers to sons and daughters of glory he saves us for the purpose of sharing his glory with us for all of eternity we were never made with the purpose of earning or meriting the crown by our works it was always with the purpose that we would obtain the crown through the grace of jesus christ And so, as we go into verses 11, 12, and 13, then uh, the author reminds us, so Jesus has come in the flesh to save us so that then we would be sanctified, made like him, that we'd be adopted into his family, that we would become his brothers and sisters, that he would be our elder brother, and that God would become our father, and that we'd be eternally adopted into the family of God. And all of this is by grace. All of it is by grace. None of it is if we work harder, if we believe more, if you do enough, you will earn this. The reason Jesus came is because you and I have no power, no ability to merit, to earn any favor from God because we are sinful. The only hope we have is through a Savior who came in the flesh so that by grace we'd be saved. And that now brings us to where we're at in verse 14. And so very possibly, the church is going, okay, we understand what Jesus has done, but how does that deal with our sin problem? How does that really correct the problem that we have with sin and death? After all, in the Old Testament, we had all these sacrifices that were supposed to deal kind of with the sin problem. And so now, beginning in verse 14, 14, the author is going to begin addressing why Jesus came in the flesh and how that deals with our sin problem. And if I could do the outline over, which technically I can right now, um, what I would basically say is the first section would be Jesus as our sacrifice, which would cover, I think, the first two points, um, and then Jesus as our high priest. That's how I would probably break it down now, because the first two are really going to cover what it means that he's our sacrifice, and then the last point or two, I don't know, we'll get through the outline, we'll see what it turns out to be, uh, is about Jesus as our high priest. And so, um, next we see Jesus as our sacrifice, he frees us from the kingdom of Satan. What we understand is if you've read through the Bible, there's this kingdom language. And the Bible's really about kingdoms. And uh, as it is, since we come from Adam, we're born into what we call the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of Satan. There's different words that, that the Bible will use. And then there's another kingdom, the kingdom of God. So there's ultimately two kingdoms. All the kingdoms of the world, the Babylons, the Romes, all of that, will, will ultimately fit into the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of Satan. 
And then you have the kingdom of God. And so what we read when we come to verse 14 is that Jesus has come on a mission, a rescue mission, to bring us out of the kingdom of Satan, out of the kingdom of the world, and bring us into the kingdom of God. And so you say, well, how does he do that? Well, we read in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same things, so he became human, so that, so that's a purpose statement, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus, through his death, defeats the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So it, asks, it begs the question, what does it mean, destroy? Because if, I think if we were to say, is, is, Jesus, or is Satan gone? Like, is he, is he dead? Has he been obliterated, annihilated? Does he have no effect on the world at all? We say, well, no, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. He seems to be still working quite a bit. So what does it mean, destroy? Well, the word actually means to be made powerless, to, to make something ineffective. And so think of it like this. Uh, you walk into someone's yard, and as you're making your way to, uh, to the door, all of a sudden, out of the bush comes a gigantic dog. And he's growling, and he's barking, and he's running at you, and you know you're going to get bit. There's no escaping this dog. You're too close. He's too fast. You're going to get bit. And then right as he jumps in the air and he's about to get to you, the chain goes tight that's attached to his neck. And it snaps him back to the ground. And you are completely and absolutely safe because that chain has bound that dog so he would be made powerless against you. So he's still very alive. He still caused problems in the yard. But where you are, it is now bound. And so the cross of Jesus Christ is the stake in the ground and also the chain that has bound Satan so that now he is powerless against those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And so then it begs the question, well, what does that mean that he's powerless and so I think one of the best passages that talks about this is Revelation 12. And so if you have your Bibles, just switch over. Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11 should just be a little bit to the right. Revelation 12, last book in the New Testament. So Revelation 12 really talks about just the gospel. And it's interesting what it says about Satan and what has happened to Satan because of the gospel. So let's just pay attention here, starting in verse 10. He says, and this is John speaking, he's the one who wrote Revelation, and he says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who's the accuser? This is where we do that interaction thing. Who's the accuser? Like three people? There you go. More people know it. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. Well, how have we conquered him? By the blood of the lamb. By the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony. So the fact that they actually believe in Jesus for they love not their own life, their lives even unto death. So a couple things we learn here. Satan is the accuser of humanity. He, day and night, he stands before God and he says, these people that have rebelled against you, they're, they're not perfect. And he, he advocates against you. Even though you're in his kingdom, he doesn't advocate for you. He advocates against you. He is your accuser. He, on day and night, recalls your faults, recalls your mistakes, and recalls your sins. Isn't that the friend that we all want? Just constantly saying, guilty, 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 guilty. You have to pour out your wrath upon them, God. If you're going to be just, you must punish. Day and night, accusing, accusing, accusing. He's pointing out all of your unrighteousness. And I mean, and it wouldn't take much, would it? Like, we know we're not perfect people. Like, we can just probably go back just a few hours, maybe a few minutes, go back surely yesterday. There's things that we do. There's things that we think. We're sinful, sinful people. 
But notice what the text says. Our accuser has been thrown down. He's been conquered. How? Because of what you've done? No. Because of the blood of the Lamb. Jesus goes to the cross, pays the price of our sins. He dies our death on the cross, which is why he came in the flesh. Think about it. As God, can Jesus die? No. So he adds to himself humanity, that he'd be fully man and fully God, that he would be able to suffer, that he would be able to die, so that he would then stand in our place, and he would take the punishment that we deserve, and so that when we believe in him, we would be justified, declared righteous. You'd be cleansed. You'd be made holy. And so now when Satan says, guilty, 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 Jesus says, innocent, innocent. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? That's what our Savior has done. He says, no, no, this is now a child of God. By grace, you are innocent. By grace, you are righteous. By grace, you have been forgiven. Do you know that? Now think about this. Come to a church who's wrestling with persecution. Imagine the things that are going through their head. Are we not saved? Is this this God's wrath coming out on us? Have we done something and he just hates us? And he's pouring out his vengeance upon us? And so the author comes and says, no. No, Remember, Jesus suffered at the cross. He's not only our founder, meaning not only does he, does he save us and show us the path of salvation, but he's also our example of what it means to live. The crown only comes by the cross. And so he's reminding them, no, no, just because you're suffering does not mean God's wrath is against you. No, no, you are adopted into the God's family and you are innocent you've been declared righteous satan has been made ineffective he's been destroyed his accusations mean nothing now isn't that good news can you see like where we say this passage is meant to come to a church and increase their joy and be this comfort that comes around them secondly still talking about jesus as our sacrifice jesus delivers us from death now, death is that topic we all love to talk about, right? Have you planned out your funeral? <laughs> we probably should, but I mean, like, it's kind of like a morbid type thing. I mean, death looms over every person. It, it always hangs in the background. It always reminds us that an end is coming. It reminds us we're not eternal. It reminds us we're finite. It reminds us that everything eventually comes to an end, and Satan loves to use the fear of death in our lives because he can paralyze us with it. It can cause us to live safe lives in which we need to risk nothing. We prioritize our well-being, our health, and our safety at all times. Let me ask you, are you fearful of death? Are you afraid of what lies beyond the curtain of death? I do wonder, as we look at just COVID and just the way many people have responded, whether they're in the church or outside the church, I think we've seen there's a lot of people afraid of death. They'll go to great extremes to do whatever they feel is safe because they're afraid of what lies beyond that curtain. But if you trusted in Jesus, the message of the text is you Do not need to fear death. Jesus' death is the death of death. Meaning he conquered death. So thus we no longer need to fear it. You see, Romans 5 and other parts will teach us that because of sin, uh, that death is the result of sin. But if Jesus goes to the cross and he pays the penalty of our sin, then what does he also take care of at the cross? He takes care of death. In fact, if you look down at verse 17, in verse 17, we read that Jesus is our high priest, and we'll get more into this in a moment, but there's a word that that we need just to come back and remind ourselves of. It's that word, propitiation. 
Now, if you're here in our church, you know that word because it's almost, we use it like every single week and we talk about it because there is no gospel without propitiation. And so what does propitiation mean? Right, it means you've absorbed or not you, but, but it means that Jesus has come as the one who's absorbed the wrath of God. So if you have like a bucket, and you got water in the bucket, and you put a sponge in the bucket, what does that sponge do? It absorbs that water, right? Jesus has absorbed the very wrath of God so that we are now able to be declared innocent and righteous, and it's because of that that Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, death has lost its sting. Do you know that? It's lost its sting. I mean, just think about that. It's lost its sting. What do you do to a person who no longer fears death? Like as a persecutor, your, your greatest card you play is will kill you. And yet as the Christian. We sit here and we go, well, we're not afraid of that. And you might go, but, but we still die, right? So if we still die, how is it that Jesus overcame death? Well, we've talked before that Jesus came, the first coming, he brings forth the kingdom. And the kingdom is present today. And we are citizens of the kingdom, and we're to display the rule of the kingdom in our lives. And that can be summed up as we love one another as ourselves, and we love God with our heart, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the rule of the kingdom, right? But at his second coming, the fullness of the kingdom will come. At that moment, all the other kingdoms of the world will be destroyed, will be washed away, and God's kingdom alone will stand in its absolute fullness where death will be fully swallowed up at that time. So right now, we, we still, unless if Christ comes, we will experience a physical death, but we will never experience what the Bible calls a second death. And the second death is reserved for those who have not believed in Christ. For those who persist in their rebellion. Those who say, you know what? I just want to live how I want. I do not believe in a God. I do not believe in the God of the Bible who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. Either I want to reject everything. I want to just believe that we are here by random chance and evolutionary chaotic means which has just produced order. Or to believe in maybe what Hinduism does, the 33 million gods, and you're constantly trying to please one of these gods. Of course, when you please one, you're making the other one angry at you. So you always try to find the most powerful God, so you please him the most. But there is no most powerful God in a kingdom of 33 million gods. And so for those who have rejected the truth of the gospel, there is a second death, and that death is the wrath of God that will come upon all who have rejected Jesus for all of eternity. But for Jesus, or for those who believe in Christ, he says death has lost its sting. It's been swallowed up. It's been defeated. I mean, just think about how glorious that truth is. That's why you read things like in Philippians where Paul says to live is Christ, what? To die is, to die is gain. That's, that's crazy talk, right? Unless if he knows something. Unless if the sting of death has been taken away. If death has been conquered, we can truly say death is gain. But how is death gain? Well, in Philippians 1.21, Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. In Philippians 1.23, he explains why. And so Paul's in prison at this moment in Philippians. And he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. He's like, I got two decisions before me. Decision one Go be with Jesus. Die. Decision two, stay on the earth and continue to equip and strengthen the church. So this is what he says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. That's amazing. Let me ask you, do you consider death far better? Because it brings us into the presence of Christ. 
That's how we're to think as Christians. That's what we need help with. That's what we need to encourage one another. That's how we need to be reminded of the truths of the gospel. Because if we're not reminded of this truth on a regular basis, what do we think? We think to live is gain. And that is far better. So we need to regularly remind ourselves that no, no, death has been defeated. It doesn't mean we... We go commit suicide. Even Paul says, I, I stay here for the sake of the church. We continually work for the sake of the kingdom as we take every breath, but we long for the day that Jesus brings us home. Because on that day, we will be in the presence of our king, the son of glory, our elder brother, the one who has died for us, the one whom we are being fully made like Beyond the curtain of death is Jesus for the Christian. We have no need to fear. I just want to encourage you with that. We have no need to fear. That doesn't mean we need to act reckless, but it does mean we are bold. For thousands of years, Christians have gone to unreached people groups, to places that are violent, and they've risked their lives for the gospel. Why? Because the sting of death has been removed. Right now, there are Christians in China. There's, we support 18 in India, and there's millions more. And there's, there's, there's Christians in North Korea and many, many countries where it is illegal to be a Christian. Why do they go there? Why do they stay? Why do they proclaim the gospel? Because they're not afraid of death. They're convinced of this truth right here. That Jesus has come and conquered. Now, bring this back to a church that's suffering. Bring this back to a church that's facing death. What does this text do? It strengthens them. It's okay. Death can't hurt you. Be bold. It's okay to stand firm and to declare, I believe in a crucified Messiah, a son of God who came in the flesh to die. And if the world hates me and will persecute me and kill me, that's okay because death is gain. If they persecute us, we count us worthy to suffer for his name. If they kill us, we praise God because we count the glory of God far greater than any breath that we take here. If they beat us, we praise God for we know that this body is simply a jar of clay and one day we will receive a new one. Those are the truths that are contained in Scripture. And they all are applicable for everyone who has believed in Christ. This is what, what he means in verse 16. He says, surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He's reminding us, this gospel, it's rooted all the way back in Abraham. The promises that were given to Abraham are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That we are now forgiven. That we're justified. We have no need to fear death. For beyond the curtain of death is the warm embrace of our Savior. So that's what I would title Jesus as our sacrifice. So that's the first part. The second part I, I would then title Jesus as our high priest. And the first thing to note is that if, if we're going to have a high priest then he must be human. I mean, if you're a high priest represents the people that he is a priest for, and thus, if Jesus is going to be our high priest, he must be like you and I, which was why, verse 17, again, he can't say it enough. He just said it in verse 14. He said it in verse 9, but he says it again in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like us. He's like, guys, you got to realize the world will mock you for believing a crucified Savior, but everything hinges on him becoming like us in the flesh. And so he says that Jesus has become our high priest, and he says he's faithful and he's merciful. So I just want to address those two things real quick. Mercy is defined as God's goodness given to those in misery. God's goodness given to those in misery. Grace is God's goodness given to those who deserve the opposite. Mercy is God's goodness given to those in misery. So because we are sinful, ultimately, we're all in a, in, a, in a state of misery, that we experience sin, that we are sinful. And so every act that God does for us 
is an act of mercy. But at the same time, because we're sinful, we do not deserve any of it. So every act of God's goodness given to us is also an act of grace. So just so you know, that's how you can kind of, grace and mercy will summarize all of God's actions for us. But mercy is God's goodness given to those in misery. And so what we have here is when we come to the Bible, we have a God who has created all things. Sin has come. And, it is, it is, and because of that, we've rebelled against God. But God doesn't just sit back and say, well, let's see what they can do. Let's see what they can think of. They're pretty smart. Maybe they can figure out a way to get to me. You know, he sees us in our misery. He says, I'll send my son Jesus. And Jesus doesn't come kicking or screaming. We read in Hebrews chapter 12 that he joyfully set before him the cross. That he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured the shame and he's now seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus comes as an act of mercy to save us from our sins. But he's also faithful. And he's faithful in at least two ways. Number one, he's faithful in that he obeyed Jesus and, or he obeyed the Father in everything that he asked him to do. He lived a perfect life here on earth, ultimately going to the cross where he died in our place. Secondly, he represents us to the Father. He's faithful to represent us. He sits down at the right hand of God right now, interceding for you and me. So as Satan will say, Guilty. Every day just shouts out guilty. And he will shout out your name. And Jesus goes, no, no. Their name is written in the book of life. They're, guilt. They're innocent. Innocent. Justified. Holy. Sanctified. He is faithful day and night. Satan faithfully accuses. And Jesus faithfully testifies of the righteousness that you've been given by grace. Do you know that truth? Every day, he's at the right hand of the Father, declaring that you have been made holy. John 6, 37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, he says this, And this is the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, this is the will of my Father. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Satan is saying, guilty, guilty. And Jesus says, no, they've been given to me. I've saved them, and I will keep them right up until the last day. And when when I return, I will raise them up, and they will live with me forever. Jesus is the guarantee of our salvation. But he doesn't stop there because he doesn't just want us to go, okay, so the sin problem has been taken care of, the death problem has been taken care of, and Jesus is every day at the right hand of the Father testifying that you've been saved. But now he just brings us right now to their very situation, and he now brings the last point where he says, Jesus helps us in our suffering, in our pain, in our temptation. And he says this in verse 18. He says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I want to look at that, but before we do, um, I just want to summarize a few false gospels or a few worldviews and, and just how is it that they address suffering and temptation? Because these, these three worldviews you face every single day right now. Number one, the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says you should have everything you want. And so the problem with your life, if you don't have what you want, is that you're not actually believing hard enough. You just need to trust God more, harder. Believe better. And if you're suffering, if you're going through trials, well, just start believing better, and, and that'll solve your problem. So that's how it addresses problems, temptations, and suffering. It's your fault. You're not believing enough. Number two, the gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism, which is kind of fun. We're actually reading through a, a book in um, staff meeting, and it was talking about this again this week. Um, but this has, been, this has been around for a long time, much it's been 
articulated this way since the early 2000s. Um, it's really a, a religion that basically says God wants good things for you, but he's impotent. He's not powerful enough to really bring about it. Um, but if you do good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, bad things will happen. This is where the moralistic part comes in. So do better, and you'll stop suffering. There you go. If you have a problem in your life, well, that's because you didn't do something super good. So do better, and, and hopefully God will be able to turn your circumstances around, and, and life will get better for you. So that's the hope that it offers. The last one that we'll look at is one that has been growing in popularity and is now really hitting culture, and it is probably part the main part of the impetus why uh, on April 18th we're going to do a faith and justice night because we just want to understand, what is justice? What is biblical justice? And so critical race theory, and we're not going to try to unpack all of this, but basically it divides everyone up into two camps. You're either an oppressor or you're an oppressed, and if things are going wrong for you, if you're experiencing trials, temptations, and problems, it's because you're being oppressed, and it's these people's fault over here. And so what we just need to do is we need to rebalance everything, and you need to get what they have. And so it's a rebalancing of equity, and, and really it's a taking away, and so the oppressed really become the oppressors at that moment. Um, but the way it deals with temptation, with problem, with trials, is saying, well, it's, it's their fault, or, or it's they're the reason, you're just a victim. And that's being just heralded right now. The problem with society is, well, you're just a victim. So we just need to flip the roles so that you're no longer a victim. It has nothing to do with the heart. It has nothing to do with our own sin. And so those are, are very popular ways that now the world is, is, is communicating. This is how these Gospels will address problems and temptations and trials. But now I just want you to see, what does the Gospel say? We have a church who's suffering. We have a church who's persecuted. We have a church who's there. They've been arrested. They've had possessions taken from them. They've been beaten. They've been kicked. And they're very much just wrestling on how do we continue? So this is how it addresses problems, temptations, trials, and suffering. Verse 18. For because... Jesus himself suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So the way the gospel comes to this church and comes to you and I right now is it says Jesus came in the flesh so that as a human, he would be tempted in every single way as you are. Yet here's the thing. He never gave in. He never sinned. Now, why is that important? Because for the most part, when you and I are tempted, if temptation is like a weight on our shoulders, the heavier that weight gets, there's a point we'll probably crumble. We often crumble. Maybe every time we crumble. But as that weight increases, we will crumble at some point. And so we can only take it so much. But Jesus never gave in. So what does that mean? The weight kept giving heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier upon his shoulders. So he endured the full force and weight of temptation all throughout his life. He never gave in. So where you and I will give in here, he took the full weight never giving in. So that means he not only knows your pain, exactly where you're at, but he knows the fullness of that pain. And so he says, I've come to give you grace. I've come to help you right now in whatever pain you're in. I've come so that I'd be your faithful and merciful high priest, not only taking care of your sins at the cross, but I've come to help you with your temptation right now and to strengthen you because I know your pain. One commentator, it was good, he, he um, I'll just read it. He says, ever felt abandoned or lonely? Jesus can relate. He's the man of sorrows, rejected and put to death by his own people. Ever felt the grief of losing someone you love? Jesus can relate. He wept at the death of Lazarus. Ever been lied about? Jesus can relate. He was betrayed by a close friend, falsely accused by the priest, ridiculed by soldiers. Ever had problems? 
Jesus was poor and had nowhere to lay his head. Ever been misunderstood by a family member? Jesus' his own family thought he lost his mind. Ever felt highly stressed? Jesus was so stressed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweated drops of blood. I just think about, have you ever been frustrated with others? So that you get impatient, so you get angry. I mean, that never happens, right? I mean, it's just like, yeah, that was yesterday, that was today, that was, you know, every day. Um, I mean, not only the crowds, but Jesus' disciples continually did not understand them. And he regularly repeated himself. You ever been tempted with acceptance? I mean, just think about this. Do you just, do you just want to belong? You ever just feel like you're just a little out of place? And you look at other people and you're like, they, they just seem to be accepted. I just, I just want to feel like I'm accepted. I just want to belong. I just want friends. Jesus goes back to his hometown and they want to kill him. I mean, you just imagine the very people he grew up with. And they just want to throw him off a cliff because they think he's blaspheming. Ever face the temptation of pride? Yesterday, today, earlier today. I mean, like, yeah? Jesus feeds 5,000 people and they just want to make him king right then. That's kind of cool, right? Like, who doesn't deserve to be king when you're like, oh, I got a few pieces of fish and loaves, you're all fed. I want that king, don't you? I want to be that guy in my own sinful pride. Ever face the temptation of compromising what you believe so you won't suffer, so you won't be mocked? I mean, Jesus goes 40 days in the wilderness, and Satan comes, and he, and he tempts him. And basically, this is what he does. You can have the crown without the cross. I'll give it all. You can have the crown, no cross. Just bow. I'll give it to you. Just bow before me. You can have the crown. And Jesus says no. Because the only way you get the crown is through the cross. And that's what chapter 2 is all about. And now, as Jesus has set the path of salvation for us, saving us by grace so that we would then live a life where it would often be characterized by suffering and temptations and trials. He says, oh, but I'm here with you. I mean, look, switch over. Just, just go a page over. Verse, chapter 4, verse 14. Just look at what this says. I, I can't wait till we get to this passage. Uh, but basically what happens at the end of chapter 2, he's going to pause on his, on his talking of priesthood, and he'll bring it back up in verse 14 of chapter 4. So he says this, Since therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, meaning don't waver, don't drift, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, meaning he knows your pain, he knows your suffering, he knows your temptation, he knows what you're going through right now, but he says, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we would receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you need help? Do you need grace? Do you need mercy? Jesus says, that's why I came. That's what this gospel does. All the other gospels say, you have a problem? You did something wrong. Do better. It's someone else's fault. And Jesus says, no, I came because you live in a broken, sinful world. You have broken, sinful hearts. So I die at the cross to pay the penalty of your sins. And I will help you through this sinful world. And I will give you grace. And I will give you mercy to strengthen you in every moment that you're at. So if you're at home and you're wrestling with a spouse, with a child, with a parent, and you're saying, I don't know how to make it through, Jesus says, oh, I have grace and mercy for you. If you're wrestling at work, how do I fit in and how do I, how do I love these people? They're just, they're hard to love. Jesus says, oh, I've, I went to the cross to give you grace and mercy. If you're struggling with finances and you just have anxiety, or maybe your septic tank just kind of goes crazy, personal story, and you just have this like crazy frustration and anger kind of going on regularly, and then you preach, God gives grace. Just saying, personal stories. Whatever you're going through, Jesus says, I know your pain. I became human. So I would fully, no, and again, we'll just go back to the superhero thing because it's helpful. Superman comes to earth, right? 
He looks like us, but he's not really like us. He didn't endure suffering and pain. It just looked human. He gets shot by a bullet. Oh, that hurt. But he didn't really get hurt. Jesus, fully human. Fully human. So he does suffer. He truly knows our weaknesses. He truly knows our temptations. And yet he never gave in. Why? So he could be your faithful, merciful priest. He could offer a perfect sacrifice himself and save you. And secondly, so he'd help you today and tomorrow and the next day and give you whatever grace and mercy it is that you need. That's how he comes alongside this church who is suffering and hurting. And that's how he comes alongside you and I in whatever situation we're in so that we would have comfort so that we would have joy, so that we would have boldness, so we would know the sting of death has been swallowed, and he stands at the right hand of the Father, testifying we are saved every day and giving you the grace and mercy that we need to walk a faithful, obedient life. Let's pray. God, you're good. You are so good and so gracious. It's, it's indescribable how we're supposed to almost respond. How do our words create a suitable response to tell you how thankful we are for what you have done, how we love you, how we praise and worship you. It feels like our words just can't say enough. And so, Lord, though, we know you know our hearts. And so, Father, we do. We just praise you. We praise you with every breath that we have, knowing that the only reason we are saved is by your grace. And knowing the only reason we stay saved is by your grace. And knowing the only reason we're able to endure suffering and temptation and whatever trial we're in right now is by your grace, by your mercy, by your faithfulness. And so I just pray that every believer here would know that today. Whatever we're going through, whatever anxiety, whatever temptation, whatever struggle, that God, we just be comforted with your mercy. You sent your son to save us from misery so we could stand firm and have joy. Not because everything around us is, is perfect, but because you are perfect and you give us the grace and mercy we need to stand firm. So Father, we just praise you. I pray that we would know this truth. And I pray as we go about today and as we go about this week that this truth would just permeate our soul, our heart, our mind. And as we, we are facing things this week, we just come back. God, we can call upon you right now. We can pray right now and you are faithful to hear and you are merciful to give the grace we need. May we never doubt that. And if we doubt it, may we just come back to the cross, which is the guarantee of our salvation. Father, we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.